Welcome to Victor E. History Podcast from the History Department at Fort Hay State University, home of Victor E. Tiger. Here at Victor E. History, Dr. Manami Guha and Holly Marquis highlight student and faculty and alumni research. I'm Holly Marquis. Today, I'm joined by Chelsea Kiefer, a sophomore history major in our online BA program, who is here today to talk about her paper, Chasing Normalcy, Relationship Dynamics in World War II Japanese-American Internment Camps. Chelsea, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm really thankful and excited for the opportunity to speak with you today. I'd like to start by having you just tell us a little about yourself. Okay, so I'm a non-traditional student here at Fort Hayes. Not only am I fully online, but I'm also a little bit older than your average student. I'm 30 years old and I decided to go to school after working for a software company for most of my 20s. I enjoyed my job, but it just wasn't what I was really passionate about. So when I was 29, I signed up for school and started here as a history major. I wanted to be more passionate about the work I was doing and something that I could really be proud of. So currently I live in Raleigh, North Carolina with my husband and our three rescue dogs, who I am a little obsessed with. I also like to hike, read, bake, travel, and of course visit museums whenever I have the chance. This was your first big original research paper, correct? Yes, and I was so nervous. I had never used Chicago before. I never did footnotes citations, and I was totally intimidated by making it to the page count of the paper. This was a paper written for historical methods, and in that class, you work with original primary sources for the first time. Often, you are learning the Chicago Manual-style citation, and you get to select your topic, which is often the scariest part for students. How did you come to land on this topic? So I knew I wanted to write something I felt was normally left out of the story or left out of history classes when the topic was taught. I had never really been taught much about the Japanese people in America or the concentration camps in America. It was always just kind of a brief mention that, you know, they went away to these camps and were relocated for a while. But they never really went into detail of what exactly that meant, the conditions of the camp or the impact it had on these people. So I wanted to tell the untold story of people who were left out of the narrative, and that's how I landed on the Japanese-American incarceration camps. And once you have a broad topic, you then have to go to the source material and narrow from there. What was that process like for you? Yes, so it was not easy for me at first to narrow down a topic at all. That process was so overwhelming. So I knew I wanted to write about life in the camps and that I wanted to make it kind of a personal story about the actual people, not really an all-compassing paper about the war or how the camps came to be, but I wasn't sure which angle to go with that from. I took LGBT plus history with Miss Marquise last summer, so I was really interested in writing about LGBT plus relationships. But unfortunately, there's just not enough records to write a whole paper on. It was still illegal in the 1940s. Um, there were people who were arrested for LGBT plus relationships in the camps. So they were mostly hidden and what documentation they did have were really destroyed. So there just wasn't enough there for me to go off of. But once I started to read letters and journals, I realized how much life changed for those in the camp in pretty much all aspects. So I was like, oh, I can write about teachers and how their relationship changed with their students. Or I could write about children growing up and dating for the first time while locked up in camp and how that changed, you know, their coming into adulthood and The more I thought about it, I decided I could just write about 
all types of relationship dynamics and not kind of have to find one that I could focus on for a whole paper. Let's back up just a little bit and provide some context. How did these camps come into existence? Okay, so World War II started in 1939, but the USA was not part of the war at that time. We did not actually enter the war until the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. So after this attack, obviously, Americans were afraid. They weren't expecting this. They didn't know it was going to happen. It came out of nowhere for the average American person. And many of them ended up blaming anyone of Japanese descent for the attack and assumed that they were working with the Japanese government or they were spies for the government. And they wanted something to be done. They wanted some type of reassurance that any Japanese American living on U.S. soil wasn't going to be working for the Japanese government. Obviously, the camps weren't just the first thing that they came to. The first thing that they did was that the FBI arrested around 3,000 Japanese Americans, mostly men who they thought to be suspicious. And there's multiple reasons why they thought that these men were suspicious. Some of them had contact with Japan still. They were writing a lot of letters to family and friends in Japan, or they were involved in any type of politics, community leaders, anything like that where they really stuck out in their community. So when that process happened with the FBI, that was the first stage of family separation. And that really planted a fear in the Japanese Americans about what would come next for them. And that fear really came to life in February of 1942, so the next year, when President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which allowed the government to relocate anyone from the West Coast that they deemed a national security threat. And of course, at this time, who did they deem a national security threat? people of Japanese descent. So this meant over 120,000 Japanese Americans were moved to these concentration camps, despite having done nothing wrong and having no evidence against them of any cooperation with the Japanese government. And what was life like in the internment camps based on your research? So, you know, I really learned that it was harder than I expected. When speaking about it, we have to remember that most of the families had very little warning or time to prepare for relocation. They didn't know they what, where they were going, so they didn't know what to pack. Some of them were only told that they could bring just one bag. And when they got there, the camps were nothing but a few basic essentials. There was a small barrack room, basic bathrooms, and an eating hall, and that was pretty much it. That's all they saw when they got there. There was nothing for them to do. They were confused. They were often angry about the situation they were in. They missed their homes. Many lost their houses, their businesses, all of their property. They had to shut all of that down before they came. Since they could pack so little, most of them tried to sell any of their belongings before they went. And a lot of them got depressed. Um, They were in this situation where they had no control over their lives. But they slowly tried to pull together to build their own community. And this was completely on their own. This was no help from the government or officials. They made their own schools. They created their own clubs and activities for the children. They held dances and holiday events. And they really tried to make life as normal as possible as they could while being in this situation. You know, they were still worried about their futures. They didn't know how long they would be locked up, if forever, if the government planned to kill them while they were in there, or if they would ever be able to return to their normal lives. Students were especially concerned about falling behind their peers, about if they would get a proper education in the camp, if they would get any kind of high school diploma, and if so, 
would a college accept that? So it was a very emotional and scary experience. And trying to chase any sense of normalcy that they could on a day-to-day basis was just a way to keep themselves and their children sane. And many parents focused on having their small children not understand what type of dire circumstances they were in because they didn't want them to have to live with that fear or burden if they could take some of that off of them. What is your main argument in this paper? So my main argument is that no matter how much the Japanese locked in these camps try to preserve a sense of normalcy for themselves, their family, their children, every relationship dynamic in their life was chained from the experience of being locked up. You discuss a number of different relationship dynamics in your paper. I'm curious, what were the relationships uh, between husbands and wives and how did they change in the camps? Okay, so before camp life, just to kind of set the scene, we're looking at 1940s America. So both marriages were influenced by both the patriarchal Japanese culture and the patriarchal American culture of the 40s. So entering the camps, many husbands felt a sense of shame that they could not protect their families or prevent them from being relocated to these camps. They felt useless that they were no longer providing for their families. That was always their role. The husband was the head of household. He protected his family. He provided for his family. And that was completely taken away. Women, however, saw almost a slight increase in their independence. Not saying that this was a fair or good experience for them. But it's just one of the experiences that happened was that the camps provided all of the meals for the women. So they weren't needing to stay back and cook all day or clean. I mean, they only had a small barrack, so there wasn't like they had a lot of housework to do. They could get a camp job. Now, these did not pay very much. It was a small wage, but for many women, that was the first time they had their own money. So they were no longer relying on their husbands for all of the money, no longer relying on them for food, housing, security, or anything like that. So they began to become a little bit more outspoken, whereas before they were kind of a meek housewife. They went along with their husband said since he was the provider. But on the other hand, I will say this, there were a lot of babies born in the camp. So maybe having less chores to do was pretty good for some of their sex lives. That is certainly an unintended consequence. Uh, Same thing. I I was interested in your paper about teenagers and how that process of courtship looked different than it would have in uh, a normal situation. Can you talk a little about that? Sure. So again, I don't want to insinuate any way that these camps were a positive experience, but like you said, there were some unintended consequences that may have given people a little bit more freedom. And teens, just like housewives, did get some of those those more freedoms inside the camps than they would have had in their neighborhoods. So many teens wrote about how at home they would never have been allowed to even hold hands with other teenagers, but in the camps, they were often able to partner up and seen walking hand in hand around the camps. Teenagers were scared. They were stressed out. They were confused. Like I said before, they were really focused on their education, their future. They didn't know what what was happening. So one way they could control their own lives and have something that they felt was their own, that they were impacting, was that they rebelled against their parents. Just like most teenagers, that is a way that they could kind of speak out against what they thought was just an unfair hand that they were dealt. So They also felt as they didn't have to listen to their parents anymore because the parents weren't making the rules. They weren't following their parents' guidelines anymore. They were following those of the government. 
The government made all the rules. The government provided them with housing. The government provided them with food. The government gave them a curfew that not only they had to listen to, their parents had to listen to. So it kind of put them almost on even playing field as their parents. They no longer felt like a child-parent relationship, but they were both under this same kind of dictatorship almost of the government controlling their whole lives. So there was also no secrets in the camps. The barracks were very tiny. Everyone could hear anything that was going on. So when one child or teenager fought with their parents for more freedom or the ability to go to a dance that the parents may not want them to, everyone on the block heard. And teenagers are pretty much pack animals. So when one heard, hey, this kid down the street, you know, argued with their parents about being able to go, it kind of inspired the rest of them to do that too. So one of the most popular spots on camp was to turn the large dining halls into a dance room on the weekends. And some of them even made their own high school proms once they had high schools and schools established to kind of have those same memories and experiences for kids in the camps as they would have had outside. But these types of events would have been heavily supervised outside of the camps or in the case of some young Japanese girls, especially in the 40s, completely forbidden. But a lot of times parents felt so much shame about the experience their kids were in and that they could not help them out at all, that they were just willing to let them have any type of freedom and fun that would have been available to them. You do a really nice job in your paper at bringing these changes in daily life down to a very personal level. What kinds of source material did you use in your research? Thank you. I was really fortunate in finding great sources when I was doing my research. I had the opportunity to read letters, both between spouses who were separated, letters from children, diaries from both adults and teenagers, and even newspapers that were published in the camps. And these all added a personal touch to the facts and data that, you know, we can look up and find. One other really interesting resource I was able to get is that since cameras were technically banned from the camps, photos were rare. There were some that snuck in some cameras and there were some government hired photographers but artists drew and painted these emotional wonderfully detailed scenes of life in the camps and those really helped me to picture in my mind how harsh the camps really were and what the people locked inside these camps really had to experience every day. Of the sources that you found which ones were the most useful or most interesting? The camp newspapers were especially useful and showed how those incarcerated tried to make life as normal as possible. The newspapers highlighted a lot of events for teens, hobbies and clubs, activities they were putting on. Um, They established churches inside the camps. Anything that was going on, they put in the newspapers so that everyone in the camp knew about it. So that was just a great resource to read and see how much they established on their own. But the most interesting thing to me was a stack of letters um, to a lady named Miss Breed from children in the camps. Miss Breed was a librarian in a California town that had a high Japanese population. So many of her students ended up being relocated to the camps. And on the day that they were leaving, she actually went to the train station, said goodbye to all of them and handed out envelopes with her mailing address on them. So for the years that these children were growing up in the camps and locked away, she kept in touch with any of them who wanted to talk to her. Not only that, but she mailed them presents. She, of course, sent lots of books. She helped them establish small libraries in the camps. She often sent snacks and food that they would have been used to eating outside the camps that they didn't have access to. 
and sometimes even clothing because since they didn't know where their camps were going to be, some of them didn't have coats or winter clothes. <clears throat> Many of them were from California, so they didn't own those things. So she would send them to them when she knew that they were in need. What's really amazing about this is she was a single woman in the 1940s, just working in a library in a small town in California. So it's pretty safe to assume she didn't make a lot of money, but she was so dedicated to these students that what small resources she had, she gave to them and really put into trying to make their lives a little bit easier. What surprised you in this research? Just really the harsh conditions of the camps. I didn't expect, you know, for it to be these nice apartment buildings that were sprung up since I had read that some of these were built in just a matter of weeks or months. But it was worse than I could have imagined. And just picturing in my mind that this happened on U.S. soil was just very emotional for me to read. Families lived in these tiny one-room shacks. They had no private bathrooms, no kitchens. Sometimes they only had one light bulb hanging from the middle of the room. Some of the temporary camps that sprung up before the larger camps were ready were even in worse conditions. One of them was made from a um, former horse track, so where they would race horses. And some of the families lived in the previous horse stalls. And these families could not get the smell of horse and urine out of the walls. So just imagining them living in these conditions, it was hard to read. Um, the bathrooms in the camps, which were all public bathrooms, were very rudimentary, and many of the toilets had issues flooding. Also, food poisoning ran rampant from either spoiled food or ill-prepared food. Being a cook was one of the low-paid jobs in the camps, so many of them didn't know how to cook. And even if they did, they didn't know how to cook for thousands of people on with the ingredients that they were given. So a lot of times they were serving moldy food, raw food, undercooked food, and people were eating the same things. So everyone would get sick at the same time and everyone would have to go to their shared bathrooms at the same time. So these conditions, when I was reading them, I was just like, wow, this is worse than prisons. Yet none of them have ever committed a crime. The worst thing for me was that I read that multiple Japanese were shot and killed at the fences of the camps by the armed guards for being too close, for touching the fence, not backing up when they said to, etc. And that just really put things in perspective of me because I had never learned that. I didn't know that any of these Japanese were killed in these camps. As I was reading your paper, something that surprised me was when uh, you discussed the bathroom situation, actually. Could you speak about the lack of privacy in the bathrooms? Yes, absolutely. That surprised me, too, when I read about it. Before I came across it, it wasn't something I specifically thought about. I didn't go and try to look up bathrooms in the camp. But zero derricks had their own private bathroom. So the community bathrooms are just rows of toilets. They didn't have any division or stalls between them. And then the showers were just an open room with shower heads. So there were no private showers either. Many of the camps were built so quickly that they had poor plumbing and some of the toilets had issues flooding. Some of the residents were right about avoiding the last toilet on the end of the line because when people flush other ones, the one on the end would actually overflow. So you didn't want to be sitting there if someone was going to flush another bathroom. Motsu of the camps even had sewage completely back up in the large just ponds of open raw sewage in the camps, which shows that, you know, the sewage one, the plumbing was not built very well before they came. A lot of times it wasn't even finished. Two, that's just dangerous, you know, to have children in the camps walking around 
and there's just raw sewage everywhere. And three, just imagine that smell. And they couldn't get away from it. They couldn't leave. If their barrack was a sign near where this raw sewage came up, that's where they had to live. All of that, the actual lack of privacy was the hardest part for most of them, especially women. Japanese women were definitely modest even compared to other women of the 1940s and it was hard on them they felt shame they were embarrassed they didn't want to get undressed in front of each other they were scared to walk to the bathroom alone at night because it was dark a lot of times the bathroom was far away from their barrack it could be blocks away all the blocks looked exactly the same especially in the dark so they didn't want to get lost they didn't want to have to go walking on their own and the men and women's Restrooms were often just a thin piece of plywood between them. Sometimes holes were formed or they were, it was so thin it was easy for men to make a hole in them. And knowing that the women had to go to the restroom often on their own unfortunately gave some men an ample opportunity to either spy on women through the holes or hide and assault women, which led to sexual violence really running rampant through the camps, which really went unpunished by the authorities who ran the camp. Sometimes it was just a matter of relocating these men to other camps where the women would never be told that these men had performed sexual violence in the camp that they were at previously. What was your biggest takeaway in this project? Um, my biggest takeaway was just how much I enjoyed doing it. I want to do more um, original research now and tell more stories that I feel are underrepresented. I always wanted to work in a museum. I still want to work in a museum. But now that I see how fun this was and how I like coming up with a story on my own from reading the clues that I could find, I want to try to pivot my goal and maybe work as some type of researcher for a museum and historical site and look up those stories that I can then spread to the community and tell their own untold stories. You actually got a volunteer opportunity out of this paper. Tell me about that. I did. So many of the interviews that I found were on a website called denshow.org, which also has a really great podcast about the camps called Camp U. And they work to preserve Japanese American history. So they're not focused solely on World War II or, or the concentration camps, but that is a large section of their work. So right now I volunteer to transcribe names found in camp newspapers. So they send me the documents and I look over it and I write every name down that's found on there, the section that it's in, and how many times the name is mentioned, etc. And the goal of that is that if someone's looking for information on a relative or someone they knew, they can just type in their name and find all of the documents that mention that person. Since doing this research project, I know how hard it is to go through documents that you can't search a text on because it's not a Word doc, it's a photo of a document. So I'm really hoping that at least being able to search by name and pull up everything related to that person will help people find what they need a lot easier and quicker. What's up next for you? So I'm about to start the second half of my sophomore year here at Fort Hayes. My goal is to hopefully present this research that we talked about today at a conference and possibly to have it published in a journal. It's really amazing to me to think that people may want to read or hear what I have to say and that someone's story may be shared with their community because of me. That's just an incredible feeling. Chelsea, thank you so much for sharing your research with me today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun and such a great opportunity. I've been so excited to do this. We will post a selected bibliography of sources for those who want to learn more about this fascinating topic at our website, victorehistory.com. That's V-I-C-T-O-R-E history.com. 
You can subscribe by email to get notifications every time we post an episode, and you can find our podcast wherever you get your podcasts or at victorehistory.com.